opportunity uh, to listen to all these uh, great papers and, and getting to, to present in this, this context. I'm also very glad that, that some sort of topics have already been raised here. I mean, Schmidt has been mentioned several times, and, and um, um, so the sort of the basic argument or the basic classical quote from the third chapter of the of Politische Theologie about the significant, significant com, uh, concepts of modern state theory has, has already been introduced because I won't do much of that like basic work in this paper. This is more of a close reading of a uh, later text by Schmidt actually. But um, in the background we have, we have raised all these questions about, not least about, about charisma and, and the politics of myth. Uh, not least, the, I think it's important to, to consider in relation to Schmidt this uh, pretty typical fascist motive of the palingenesis, uh, uh, and like the cyclical view of time that's a sort of a precondition for that. Um, and uh, also like questions of authority, the authoritarian state, and, and also the specter of totalitarianism in the background. Now, I will speak mostly about the later Schmidt here today, um, actually from the perspective of the 1950s or even the year 1950. Um, so sort of in the aftermath of his own political engagement. Um, and um, as I say, I, I won't go in very deeply into, to, uh, or I won't deal so much with the basics, but I will um, try to work through this three sort of figures or con concepts from my title, the Epimetheus, the uh, Marianism and Catacontism, and try to, to lead them back to, to, to show how they are features of Schmidt's thought even from the beginning before he sort of formulates concepts. Uh, and in the question session afterwards, perhaps I, if there's like some sort of uh, not enough, not enough clarity. I, I can like return to and, and try to develop how, how I see the interrelation within Schmidt's work. Um, Schmidt is of course also a very problematic character. Uh, I won't do much of, of like sort of ethical um, uh, analysis of what he has to say. Um, I, I think I think that might might be one of the least problems like. <laughs> with him, so, uh, but I won't talk much about that either today, uh, but I, I just want you to know that, that I, I'm, I'm not very fond of him or his policies, that's not like why I deal with him, it's always good to have that out in the air before talking about him. So, without further ado, I'll turn to my paper. So, uh, political theology uh, as a discourse or discipline is constituted through some sort of relationship to myth. To many, theology is just one form of mythology, of course. Uh, however, according to some modern theologians like Karl Barth or, or, or Bultmann, myth is the antithesis of theology, and the latter supplies the way out of what they regard as a sort of tyranny of myth. And this is, of course, true about the Benjamin as well. Other intellectuals like Hans Blumenberg um, emphasized the relative freedom of mythical thought in comparison with theological dogma. 
In perhaps his most known essay on the political implications of myth, the Politische Theorie des Mythos from 1923, Carl Schmitt somewhat cryptically opposes what he calls political theology to political myth. Myth is polytheistic, that is pluralistic, something that his own theory or theology sits uneasy with. Schmidt's contention seems to be that political theology must strive to formulate a framework for maintaining some sort of control over the spread and consequences of modern myths. My paper here today concerns the interplay between myth and theology in Schmidt's thought, and I will discuss their interrelation through Schmidt's use of three mythological figures of theological import, that is the Epimetheus, the Virgin Mary, and the Catechon. And my contention, the Catechon, K-A-T-E-C-H-O-N. Uh, it's been raised already here in, in the preceding talk, but um, I, I'll, I'll get into like explaining what Schmidt means by it uh, later. So um, my contention is that the basic structure of Schmidt's political theology and its place in modern thought, as perceived by him, um, can be discerned through an analysis of the way he employs these figures. This, not, this does not mean that these figures are, are particularly common in Schmidt's work. It does, however, mean that the way he uses them is particularly telling. His way of employing these figures gives us an insight into the eschatological character of his thought, which paradoxically turns out to illustrate the sort of very modern preconditions or contexts for his political theological venture. Um, reading Schmidt's text on the modern theory of political myth, it quickly becomes apparent that a primary concern for him was to decelerate the growing political fragmentation following the development of modern social mythologies, for him best represented by the work of the revolutionary Georges Sorel. Schmidt was an apocalyptician, in Jakob Taube's terms, an apocalyptician of the counter-revolution. That, however, does not mean that he longed for the end times for Armageddon and final judgment. On the contrary, Schmidt wanted to keep the eschaton at bay. Even if the parousia and God's reckoning were inevitable, he sought the possibility of a delay, of a restraining force that would impede the approach of chaos and final conflict. And this is the basic substance of Schmidt's political theology. And at first sight, it might look totally anti-modern. And it is to a certain extent, but at the same time, it fits a particular modern pattern observed by other German thinkers of Schmidt's generation. Schmidt's political theology could be said to actively mirror, in a very conscious way, elements of modern thought that he perceived as destructive and wanted to restrain. The majority of Schmidt's work are not ostensibly about political theology. They generally deal with worldly juridical matters, such as constitutional affairs, the principles of legality, and the like. Granted, Schmidt's perspective is not solely oriented toward the day-to-day -to -day of public life, so to speak. Rather, his concern was the extraordinary, the crisis, and extreme conditions like war, coup d'etats, revolution, and the ultimate sources of power. And that's how political theology as a discipline or discourse comes into the picture. All of these elements of crisis fit within a frame of eschatological interpretation of world historical events. My suggestion is that we should read Schmidt's political theological interventions as articulating a position 
within a specific modern regime of historicity, something that makes his interventions not directly anti-modern, but rather alter-modern. Alter-modern, alter yeah. Other members of Schmidt's intellectual generation suggested that modern conceptions of world history should be regarded as something of a secularized Judeo-Christian eschatology. To some extent, this is not a particularly extreme assertion. Comparing historical events with mythological figures and images for poetic effects, that is, after all, pretty common. But there is a stronger claim of this sort of secularization, where the point is that what we are dealing with is not conscious comparisons at all, but rather the basic structure of imagination that informs our whole capacity to understand and order, to find meaning in history at all. Basically, modern conceptions of time and history tended to produce their sense of meaning, their sense of legitimation, through appeal to some kind of future instance. Historical development was to become the answer to contemporary suffering, a pattern that applies to both paradigms of economic or humanistic development as well as to revolutionary politics. As Schmidt would put it in 1950 in one of his first publications after World War II, I quote, Today, every attempt at a self-understanding ultimately proves to be a situating oneself by means of the philosophy of history or a utopian self-dislocation. Today, all human beings who plan and attempt to unite masses behind their plans engage in some sort form of philosophy of history. End of quote. This observation on the importance of the philosophy of history introduced an essay dealing with a book published just a year before namely Karl Lovett's Meaning in History. This book came to have a formative influence on the debate regarding the implications of secularization in Germany during the coming decades. Lovett had, of course, written a pseudonymous scathing critique of Schmidt in the 1930s and regarded the jurists' theorists as an intellectual expression of the same European sickness that had produced the totalitarian horrors of the 20th century, this is, though, though, a fact that was unknown to Schmidt in 1950. Uh, so he wrote it under pseudonym. Yeah, Hugo Fiala is the pseudonym. Uh, it's said that Schmidt thought it was uh, Lukács who had written, the, uh, written it. Uh, and of course, it's, Schmidt was really upset when he found out later in the 1960s that it was Lovett, because he sort of, he's, it's very obvious from this essay that he ad admires Lovett to some extent. Anyway, um, Schmidt's type of uh, occasionalist decisionist thought, Levitt claimed, was the peak of an historical tendency towards nihilism afflicting the European intelligentsia. After the loss of faith, European thought desperately turned to other forms of guarantees of meaning, even if they could only be found in, in pure decisiveness itself, or in the decision for bare decisiveness, as Levitt puts it in the... In the say from 1935. But in fact, Schmidt was closer to agreeing with Lovett on the problems afflicting Europe than Lovett perhaps would have acknowledged. Um, Schmidt's approach to myth and political theology explains how and why. The essay in which Schmidt commented on Lovett's book, Drei Möglichkeiten eines christlichen Geschichtsbildes, Three Possibilities for a Christian Conception of History in English Translation, was overall a rather positive assessment on Lovett's book. 
Schmidt, however, wanted to counter one point. In his view, Lovett had misinterpreted the possibility of a merging of Christian eschatology and historical consciousness. Schmidt obviously saw his own conception of secularization mirrored in Lovett's, though he saw fit to introduce a more active Christian element to counter certain tendencies in it. In Lovett's view, the human need to interpret history at all as some sort of meaningful story grew out of the experience of suffering. As he puts it, quote, the interpretation of history is, in the last analysis, an attempt to understand the meaning of history as the meaning of suffering by historical action. And in the Western world, the problem of suffering has been faced in two different ways, by the myth of Prometheus and the faith in Christ. The one a rebel, the other a servant. When Lovett chooses to compare Prometheus and Christ in this way, uh, and with them myth and faith, he simultaneously brings forth the central theme of his book. That is how ancient Christian and often modern conceptions of history are constituted in a structural way. The question of suffering and its legitimation or delegitimization is also made clear. Basically, what we can see expressed here are two different convictions. Either suffering can be explained through the powers of myth within a cyclical universe of eternal recurrence, the laws of which are based on immanent principles as a punishment for transgressions against the orderly functioning of things. This is then the ancient way of understanding it. Or suffering is explained as a feature of this world for now, a product of the sin in this world, and it will be redeemed in the world to come through Christ's second coming and the final judgment. Modern historical thinking has inherited the orientation towards the future from Christianity, but it is concerned with imminent causes of history's movement and does not believe in its sort of transcendent guarantor in, in God, basically. Uh, modern philosophy of history, according to Lovett, um, is a compound of ancient and Christian elements, and this is the reason for what he calls its dim vision in comparison with either of its two sources. Whether or not modernity's view is dim from a compound of faith and reason, it is striking how well the idea of a compound between myth and eschatology effectively describes the basic structure of Schmidt's political theological figuration, so to speak. It is this figuration that, that earns him my suggested title of modern epimetheus. And it is this political theological figuration that I will try to describe in what follows. I will return to Lovett's book and its more to its exact importance for Schmidt's political theology of history, his political eschatology, one might say. But first, I want to talk a little about the figures of Prometheus and William Epimetheus. Now, I'm guessing that everybody knows Prometheus, but still, um, in Greek mythology, Prometheus was, was a titan who stole fire from the gods and gave it to mankind. And for this and other crimes against Zeus, he was chained to, chained to a cliff and subjected to an ever-returning eternal torture, basically an eagle coming every day and eating his liver. Um, and through his association with fire and his rebellion against the gods, he became a symbol of civilizational and technological progress, especially in modern appropriations of this myth. Karl Marx, for instance, called Prometheus, quote, the greatest saint and martyr of the philosopher's calendar in his doctoral dissertation. 
generally speaking, Prometheus has been envisioned as a friend of humanity in opposition to the old orders of divine hierarchy. And this view of Prometheus is probably what connects him to the myth of Pandora and their box, as the latter was opened by Prometheus' brother, Epimetheus, who had been seduced by Pandora and therefore sprung the trap of the gods that this sort of led to the whole downfall of Prometheus. In the old Greek tradition, uh, Epimetheus is thus depicted as sort of the antithesis of Prometheus. And their names have been interpreted as related to afterthought, that is then Epimetheus, and forethought, Prometheus. Uh, the afterthought of Epimetheus is not seldom taken to, Im to imply a lack of intelligence. Norman O'Brown, for instance, translates Hesiod's description of Epimetheus as half-wit. Uh, as Schmidt says of his intellectual peers in his post-war diaries, they are all on the side of Prometheus. Bachhoff and Schmidt writes, made of Epimetheus a dullard, a dullard heilig in opposition to the manly, fiery, solar Prometheus. <coughs> but how, Schmidt, Schmidt asks, could they then be called brothers? In reality, Schmidt suggests, they are brothers like Cain and Abel of the Bible. To him, Epimetheus appears as the Abel to Prometheus Cain. Uh, Epimetheanism appears as a line of thought late in Schmidt's work in general. Um, and Schmidt gets the figure of, the Epimethe of Epimetheus from his friend, the poet Konrad Weiss, who used it in a book published in 1933, uh, a book entitled Der Christliche Epimetheus. Uh, Weiss takes the place of a central poetic reference for Schmidt uh, that was once held by the, or, or originally uh, held by the expressionist Theodor Deubler, uh, who was adored by the young Schmidt. Uh, after World War II, Schmidt wrote that Weiss came to replace Deubler in his sort of pantheon because of the latter's nourishment, as he puts it, from Promethean Atlantic Gulf streams. Relating Prometheus to the Atlantic Ocean this way emphasizes how Schmidt envisages the connection between Prometheanism and his conception of modernity as emerging from the English turn to the sea and away from continental Europe following the Reformation and the English Civil War. The Christian Epimetheus of Weiss therefore appears as a specifically counter-modern or yet again alter-modern figuration when appropriated by Schmidt. Uh, something that wouldn't have bothered the radically conservative vice, of course. Uh, when Schmidt calls himself a genuine, if unworthy, case of the Christian Epimetheus after World War II, this could be taken as describing his engagement with Nazism. That is, the collaboration with the Nazis could be likened to opening Pandora's box. Uh, and this would be Epimetheanism as a backwards admission of guilt. But there is something more to Epimetheus in Schmidt's thinking. As a mythological figure, Epimetheus is not just a simpleton. He can be described as expressing genuine faith. In contrast to his brother, Epimetheus does not challenge the gods. Instead, he accepts the gifts willingly and dutifully, whatever may come of it. Therefore, Epimetheanism entails an element of prescribed necessity. When Prometheus proclaims his dissidence with the godly order and attempts to challenge the fate of humanity, Epimetheus accepts his fate and acts accordingly. 
so the Epimetheon, likewise, can be considered a sort of a dissident to Prometheanism. In the words of Conrad Weiss, quote, quoted by Schmidt in the late 1940s, the Christian Epimetheus can encourage us thus, fulfill that which, that which you must. It is already always fulfilled, and you only give answer. Epimetheanism is a mythological form for a historico-political fatalism. It is like Schmidt's own version of only obeying orders. The direct occasion for Schmidt's conception of the three possibilities essay was, as I said, his reading of Karl Lewitt's great work on the secularization of Western historical consciousness, meaning in history. Um, Lewitt's work is an important context for understanding Schmidt, and not only in this particular case. I believe that much could be gained from a reading of Schmidt's later work on political theology, not least Politische Theologie 2 from 1970, Against the discourse on secularization in West Germany during the 1950s and 60s, this is of course not a um, um, uh, discourse or, or a debate that Schmidt openly refers to, but um, Löwe's work can reasonably be claimed as the fundamental target of Hans Blumenberg's uh, Die Legitimität der Neuzeit, first published in 1966 which in turn was the object of, a, of critical discussion by Schmidt in the afterward to preach it to the So it's like in there in the background. Um, but besides this specific contextualization, reading three possibilities against Lovitz's book discloses important elements of Schmidt's general view of history. They continue the importance of eschatology and modernity, the inherent implications of mythical figures, and how his political theology is supposed to work sort of, sort of as an intellectual project. Or perhaps rather, uh, the eschatological framework in which Schmidt's political theology is employed as an intellectual project. To summarize Levitt's narrative, one could say that uh, Judeo-Christian eschatology, according to him, finds its <coughs> traditional form in Augustine's theology, where worldly history is regarded as empty of meaning and all hope for salvation is placed sort of outside of creation in the hands of the almighty creator God. This theology is then challenged during the high middle ages by the theology of Joachim de Fiore, who attempts to read worldly history prophetically Interpreting it through, um, interpreting its meaning through biblical exegesis. This way, Levitt argues, it becomes possible for Joachim and his millenarian followers to invest worldly history with supernatural meaning. Not only can we see God working through worldly history, argues Joachim, we can also expect salvation within worldly history as a peaceful kingdom prefiguring the return of Christ at the end of days. Christian eschatology thus evolves from a condemnation of worldly human history into an affirmation of its inherent teleology as a path towards worldly perfection. This structure, Lovett claims, is the foundation for Hegel's conception of history as the self-realization of spirit, even if Hegel collapses the transcendent God into the immanence of history. To Hegel, history is one and, one and immanent to the evolution of Logos. God's providence is turned into the cunning of reason. And it is this conception of Logos, Levitt argues, that makes it possible for Marx to develop his view of the economic base for history and the class struggle. 
In Marx and other moderns, we find an affirmation of worldly activity as inherently messianic, even though they themselves cannot see their own messianism as such. At least that's Levitt's argument. What Levitt presents, though he does not use the term himself, is something of a Promethean turn of the eschatological conception of time through an immanentization of messianism. That is, the shift from Christianity's patient expectation of God's transcendent grace to a focus on immanent work by mankind itself signals something unmistakably Promethean. Eric Fagelin's thesis on Gnosticism, another object of critique in Blumenberg's uh, Die Legitimität der Neuzeit, and hence also an important background for Schmidt, uh, frames the 17th century Puritan revolution in terms of Prometheanism. Fagelin also emphasizes the role of Joachim for laying the ground for this development. The radical Protestant and Joachimite idea that the kingdom of God was in fact already an earthly reality, or at least possible to realize within the immanence of creation through faithful human striving, was inherently Promethean according to Fegelin. It is a radical revolutionary idea, opposed to the conception of an eschatology dependent on transcendent grace. In this, it was sharply distinguished from traditional Christian faith and the inherited theological structure of Augustine's eschatology. What emerges here, then, is a theologically structured figuration of political myth, expressing a conception of modernization as human self-assertion, completely in line with what Blumenberg, uh, though without the critical intent of Lewitt or Faglin or indeed Schmidt, calls Selbstbehauptung, self-assertion, sort of. Uh, and this, I argue, is also what Schmidt wants cr to critique with his idea of the Christian epimetheus. Of course, the pre precondition for talking about the Christian epimetheus at all in, in Schmidt's way is something akin to uh, Christian Prometheus, which according to its own inherent dynamic is easily reconfigured into, a, into a Prometheanism that is immanent, secular, and atheist. And to explain how, I now turn to Schmidt. In the Three Possibilities essay, Schmidt seems to agree with the basic narrative that Lovett presents in Meaning in History. Indeed, it has very many similarities with the narrative from Politische Theologie, Römische Katholicismus und Politische Form, and other works where Schmidt touches upon an outline of a theory of political theology and secularization. The Christian Prometheanism of progressivism that can be constructed out of Lovitz and Fergelin's studies on the modern reconfiguration of eschatological faith is strikingly similar to what Schmidt calls the religion of technicity in, sev in several of his works. Uh, and this is sort of Schmidt's designation of, of, or description of, of uh, technological progressivism, modern idea of... of uh, well, there's salvatory potential of, of techniques, te technology. However, as I stated earlier, Schmidt takes issue with, with Levitt's claim that a Christian history is nonsense, um, for which Augustine's distinction between world history and grace is paradigmatic. Uh, uh, Schmidt contra Lovitt wants to argue for a Christian conception of history, and it does so precisely through that merging of eschatology with worldly history that Lovitt would like to question. At the same time, Schmidt remains opposed to the Promethean turn of modern historical consciousness. 
How is this possible? Well, here the figure of Epimetheus is of utmost importance. Schmidt underlines three, remar three remarks apropos uh, Lovett's work. First, he aligns Lovett with something he claims is a paradoxically strong strand in modern thought, a general tendency to compare one's own time with, quote from Schmidt here, the time of the Roman civil wars as well as early Christianity, end of quote. Schmidt calls this the great historical parallel, and he particularly mentions the revolutionary Saint-Simon, uh, but he insists that Saint-Simon is not alone in this idea of, of like uh, the revolutionary age uh, being uh, an age of forming of new religions reminiscent of, of uh, year zero, basically, in the Roman Empire. Basically, Schmidt's assumption here is that Lovett illustrates that the problem with the modern conception of history is a product of Christian eschatology, and hence modernity is con contemporaneous with Christ in a formal sense. It is important to note that Schmidt does not simply affirm this contemporaneity, but, he, but he, that he primarily identifies it. His own position, deeply indebted as it is to the Roman Catholic Church, um, or his own rather um, yeah, yeah. yeah his, his own idea of uh, Catholicism uh, and Schmidt, Schmidt is very much aware of the fact that it's um, that Catholicism's ecclesiastical bureaucracy is at least a few hundred years younger than this but this is exactly the point. Schmidt sees an importance in a form of institutional mediation that modernity has forgotten in its longing for what can be described as parousia and eschaton. Second, Schmidt questions the separation of historical consciousness from eschatological faith made by Lovett, among others. To Schmidt, there is a clear possibility of a bridge, as he calls it, offering a specifically Christian eschatological conception of history. One could, could describe this as a way of conceptualizing history as meaningful while accepting Augustine's view of a sinful man and uh, a sinful world history. Schmidt's bridge between history and eschatology, consciousness and faith, as he put it, puts it, can be found in the figure of the catechon, the restrainer from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and I will shortly return to this obscure figure. Um, third, Schmidt argues that the essence of Christianity is not found in some sort of morality or in a doctrine. Neither can it be conceived as a religion in the sense of comparative religious studies. Rather, Schmidt writes, Christianity must be conceived as a faithful observation of, in his world, a singular historical event, the incarnation in the Virgin Mary. What is essentially Christian, according to Schmidt, is therefore the Marian image of history, which is Epimethean in the sense envisaged by his friend, the above-mentioned con poet Conrad Weiss. Uh, as Schmidt puts it in his glossarium, uh, our enemy always repeatedly fails in the face of these three secrets, the incarnation of the sun, the virgin birth, the resurrection of the flesh. Of these three secrets, only the second contains the approach to history, through the virgin's consent to the will of the Lord. Uh, I didn't really consider this when I, when I wrote the paper, but when I went through it earlier today, um, in, in the morning, I just can't believe I missed the, like, our enemy part. Uh, 
which is obviously like uh, to me strikingly like an anti-Semitic remark here. Like, who is the enemy who who doesn't who, who repeatedly fails in in the face of three secrets like the incarnation of the Son, the Virgin Birth, and the resurrection of the flesh? I mean, it's sort of it, it just struck me like from nowhere that it feels rather well identifying the Jew with the anti-Christian, so to speak. Um, it should be underlined that the annunciation of the Lord must be regarded as a very particular way of thinking, not only the singularity of the Christ event, but also the great historical parallel that Schmidt claims to find in modern thought. That Weiss and Schmidt emphasizes the word in Mary and the particular Marian conception of history, in contrast to, for instance, a Christological one, is significant since it radically shifts the perspective on the incarnation. Rather than focusing on how God becomes the son of man, basically one of us, the Marian perspective tells the story of how God's demands fall upon us all in seemingly contingent matter and caring for our individual welfare or wishes. What is at stake here is our confrontation with God the Father as our Lord, not with the Son as our redeeming other. Marianism also contains a clear way of responding to God's commands through obedience. Marianism has its own eschatology and view of grace, clearly expressed by Conrad Weiss through Mary's words as a response to the Annunciation in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. This is to some extent an occasionalism, but not the nihilist kind that is generally read into Schmidt's work, as for example paradigmatically by Lovett in the well-known article The Occasional Decisionism of Carl Schmidt that I referred to earlier here. Rather than challenging uh, established order through an adherence to a more authentic relation to nothingness, Marianism is an expression of a will to counter what is perceived as modern nihilism through an adherence to the will of the creator, whether it is mediated through creation in imminent laws, so to speak, or expressed in unmediated decisions, extraordinary measures, miracles, and Schmidt's doctrine of the of, this, of sovereignty can be, be seen through this. Um, the creator may work through nature or through his sovereign grace, fully exhibited through the figure of Mary and her miraculous pregnancy. Uh, Conrad Weiss writes that history bears witness to strong creatorizations, um, and I believe that this is, uh, he, he uses the word kreaturierungen, uh, which is difficult, but um, that I, I, I sort of assume is, is his neologism, and I'm, I'm very, would be very glad to, be, be, uh, to, to, to uh, have this explained to me if it's not a neologism. But still, creatorizations of insertions of the eternal into the course of temporal epochs. From the Marian perspective, imminent creation runs its own course, but its very nature of createdness, the very fact that it is creaturely, opens it up for the miraculous transgressions of moments when the will of God transcends creation's imminent laws. Mary is perhaps the mediating figure par excellence in the Christian tradition, the creature that is necessary for the creator himself to become creaturely incarnated. Mary is an essential part of salvation, but she is also, however holy, outside of the Trinity. 
Her election through grace and pneumatical generation of her pregnancy represents an alternative view of charismatic structure, that is, the distribution of God's gift to his chosen. Um, and just a, a, a very short little detail there. I mean, the, the word charisma here uh, is, of course, from the biblical tradition. It's from, from, from uh, uh, St. Paul that talks about charis charismatic gifts to the, to, to the congregation. Uh, and there is a, a sort of a... I don't, it's not even hidden, but it's, it's, a, it's an important context for, for Weber's conception of, of uh, charisma is that he takes it from uh, the German legal historian Rudolf Sohm, who wrote two books on, on uh, uh, church, uh, the history of church law, which he was an, an ardent opponent of because he was a, a radical Protestant and a radical anti Catholic thinker. Uh, this is one of the great inspirations for Schmidt's thinking. Um, he, he's, he totally buys uh, Soham's sort of history of the, the Catholic Church, but he turns it around. The idea that, that uh, um, the, the God's charisma could be mediated through sort of a church, um, a bureaucratic structure. Uh, was like anathema to, to Sohm, but Schmidt sees this as like the great contribution of, of Catholicism, the, the institution that mediates grace, basically. Um, thinking along Schmidt's theory about political theology, uh, we can take Mariology as the metaphysical expression of an institutional ideal. Marian theology shows how Schmidt's understanding of the miraculous exception and decisionism from political theology can be related to the concrete order thinking that is, that is expressed in other of his works. In short, uh, Schmidt's Marianism theologically explains and grounds his attempt to integrate the events of sovereignties and or constitutive powers, extraordinary, miracular, miraculous moments within a charismatic order like the structure of the state. And this allows for Schmidt's theory of the institution to be read in the light of a Marian ecclesiology. What this means is that the event of the extraordinary, das Rechtswunder, to put it in Hans Kelsen's terms, uh, is to be integrated into a strong totality of the church, state, or political unity. Marianism therefore names a certain way of acknowledging godly transcendence within the immanence of creation, but also of obedience to the will of God. Marianism is therefore a precondition for Schmidt's Christian epimetheanism, since it supplies a distinctively uh, Christian framework with its conceptualization of the miracle, this is the political, mythological, or theological frame for Schmidt's own order thinking. And from this explication of Marianism, it is easy to see how Schmidt's conception of the catechon expresses something very similar. This mystical figure is mentioned in two verses in the New Testament. Uh, and I will read St. Paul's description of, of the catechon from the second letter of the Thessalonians. It's verse 6 to 7. Uh, and now you know what is restraining, that it may be revealed in its own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with breath 
with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, the restraining and he who restrains, this is the katekon in two different forms in St. Paul's um, description here. And already Augustine expressed confusion at Paul's katekon and suggesting that the original meaning of the figure had been lost. This is already like in the fourth century. Uh, other church fathers used the catechon in their apologetics and claimed that it was a symbol of the Roman Empire or the Roman Empire. And later, this idea was used to describe the, the role of the Holy Roman Empire within the, 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 the Republica Christiana. Uh, Schmidt probably got the idea about this figure from his friend um, Wilhelm Stapel, one of the conservative revolutionaries and an ardent supporter of the Nazi party, uh, who had used it in texts dating from the early 1930s, which is the period Schmidt mentions that his interest stems from. Uh, the lawless one of this, this quote from the letter to, second letter to the Thessalonians is often uh, identified as the Antichrist, whose reign of the, over the world was predicted uh, as part of the end times. Uh, and the force restraining him, therefore, uh, paradoxically, also restrains the coming of the Lord and, and the ultimate judgment. So, uh, in Schmidt's work, the katekon is the principle guaranteeing order, stability, and restraining the coming lawlessness. Um, it is an anti-revolutionary figure for Schmidt. Uh, and as Schmidt himself notes in the diaries from the time of, around the writing of three possibilities, the catechon must be a real presence in the world at all times, or else the end times would, al would already have been upon us, as he puts it. In fact, in Glossarium, the, the collection of Schmidt's um, uh, diaries from, from 1947 to 1951, Schmidt gives us a rare admission of faith. He writes that he himself actually believes in the Catechon. Uh, this should be noted since this is one of the few times in the entirety of his works, and perhaps the only time, that Schmidt actually uses the word Glaube to describe his own position. Whether or not Schmidt truly believed in the catechon as real, whatever that may mean, uh, the institutional structure implied by, the, by this metaphysical idea is something very real for him. Uh, truth may also be something very relative here, uh, and asking for it leads us on the wrong track. Schmidt, inspired by though not uncritical of George Sorel, wrote that myths most of all were a product of great social energies generated by and, and forming collectives. An important part of Schmidt's political theological project seems to have been conceived as an attempt to counter what he viewed as the profanation of law and politics through the spirit of technicity. In Schmidt's view, modernity does not transcend myth through its adherence to technological reason. Rather, technicity, in all its Prometheanism, uh, is itself a mythization of technology into a sort of Weltanschauung. Political mythologies are actually rampant in modernity, Schmidt argues. What is missing is the framework to interpret and discipline them. And this is why Schmidt emphasizes a conflict between political theology and myth. So Epimetheus, Mary, and the Catechon are therefore counter-mythical figures of central importance to Schmidt's intellectual project. 
careful constructs of a Catholic layman theologian attempting to grasp his time in thought. They are expressions of an eccentric theology, but as countermyths, they may tell us something about their time and their creator. But they also show us the limits of attempting to read Schmidt as something other than a Christian, whether it is to claim him for paganism or for, for, for Gnosticism, which are readings suggested by different interpreters. Schmidt says Catholicity is distinctively Christian, even if it is explicitly not messianic. It is, as I have argued above, Marianist. And explicitly tries to delimit anarchic elements of Christianity in their consequences for the political sphere. Nothing else. And I would like to finish by just stating the importance of, of um, reading on how to, to like approach this sort of political theological framework out of sort of a, a relation to Schmidt's own program of political theology. Basically, what we see here is um, sort of an idea of ecclesiology uh, becoming an institutionalism. So when, when Schmidt works with these mythological ideas in a sort of a forming a, a theological pattern, he is also at the same time uh, working on, on a framework for his own institutionalism, political institutionalism, or what he called concrete order thinking. So um, as to the idea of what Schmidt himself believes or what he sees as like forms of uh, theological thinking that can order the world in, in, the world in uh, institutional forms, um, it's, a strange, it, it, it's a complicated question, and I think that it's important to, to um, see that, that whatever he, he, he does, he, he opens like uh, a sort of a hermeneutics or something like that between like the re religious traditions and political institutions that uh, is um, well at least dynamic. Let's put it that way. Uh, thank you. Thank you.